Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Today on the show, I spoke with Zaki Mannion, who, if you've been around any amount of time in blockchain, you know who Zaki is, or you might know him personally. Uh, he is the co-founder of Somalia. That's one of the most recent projects he is working on, but he's uh, maybe better known for helping launch the Cosmos um, blockchain uh, world. He was uh, the director at the Tendermint Foundation, which um, kind of is the software that runs on top of Cosmos. Uh, Cosmos is a is a blockchain where if you want your own specific blockchain for um, an application or uh, for your protocol, that's where you go to build it um, rather than building on top of another public blockchain like Ethereum. Uh, we talked a lot about Cosmos, um, about some of the history, uh, about how it's uh, seen some better days, uh, the low blow-ups of last year, um, especially the Terra Luna stablecoin uh, that, that failed uh, was a tough one for the um, Cosmos ecosystem because Terra was built on Cosmos and there was a lot of um, a lot of connections to the, the DeFi world um, in the Cosmos uh, chain uh, related to Terra. Um, so Zaki gave his uh, kind of comments on that and, um, you know, not just the bad stuff, but what, what was a kind of a silver lining to all of that. Um, we also just talked about the general state of things uh, in the crypto winter and uh, what uh, Zaki sees as, um, you know, some green shoots here coming out of this winter. So with all that out of the way, uh, let's get to the conversation. Thanks for being here. And I hope you enjoy it. Hello there, Zaki. How's it going? Uh, it's going great, man. Thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to talk to you. Before we get into all the cool stuff that you've done with Cosmos and Tendermint and um, Somalia, I thought we could kind of, there's a couple of things that are happening kind of concurrently right now in the Web3 blockchain world that I, I thought I'd, I'd love to hear your take on. Um, and it's because I'm a little bit bummed about it, but I think a lot of people are excited. And so it, it's basically, there's a couple of things. PayPal has come out and said that they're going to release a stable coin. Yeah. And then Visa said recently that they're going to um, create a system where you can use a Visa card to pay for gas fees um, inside of, uh, of a, uh, a smart contract wallet. So a lot of people are really excited about that. I get it. Like PayPal is a huge deal. But I'm also kind of uh, on the fence a little bit because one of the things I love about this space the most, I think, is its permissionlessness and the fact that you can just build stuff put it out there either on, on top of chain or you can build your own protocol, put it out into the world and nobody can stop you from doing it. When you think of like any other profession, you need a credential, you need a license, you need a degree, you need a certificate, you need something, right? To kind of get permission to do stuff. But here, that's never been the case. And I feel like that's getting taken away a little bit if, if these centralized, um, huge payments companies are in the middle of a lot of these transactions. I just, I mean... PayPal, if you remember, if you buy crypto on PayPal, they don't give you the keys, right? So it's not even your crypto. And they have the ability to turn off the stablecoin and, you know, to do things uh, like that as a centralized authority. So kind of, I've been in this a while and it kind of bums me out a little bit. And I was curious what, what your take is on that. So I think there's a couple of, I, I guess where my mind goes a little bit is... I've okay, so I'll, I'll just quickly kind of of a brain dump a couple of, of different aspects yeah, of the sure, thesis go for it. to me. Okay, I think the big so let's talk about a couple of things. One is okay, so 
I kind of, I've been in blockchains for a long time. What I think about is like basically prior to summer 2020, we had like probably a couple of hundred on-chain users. It was really that bad. Um, we had we had this like very tiny on-chain user base. And what we and so we had this tiny on-chain user base, you know, and you know, it was it was when it was when it was, you know, you were building blockchain protocols, you were kind of building them in this like um, kind of vacuum where you hypothesized like uh, uh, future user behavior and future user needs while building things like Cosmos and Tendermint and Ethereum and Solana. It was all it was all very hypothetical because we had very little uh, real user. It was basically a lot of stories of when the users come, it will be like this. Um, yeah. And, you know, in that era, we we talked, you know, there was a lot more philosophical talk about, you know, the trade-offs between permissionless systems and permission systems. And it was all very, uh, but it was all very hypothetical. And then, you know, starting in 2020 and then through the pandemic, and even today, we are, we, we are, we are seeing, you know, there, there do seem to be perhaps hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of on-chain users. And what you're see what, what you see from, you know, large brands, um, like Coinbase, Visa, PayPal, um, and large pieces of, of financial infrastructure is they foresee a future where there might be tens, hundreds of millions of on-chain users. Mm-hmm. Um, and bringing tens of millions of users on chain, um, because if you know all we ever accomplish in blockchains is uh, people uh, uh, trading and speculating on assets on centralized exchanges, we have accomplished nothing, and all of this has been pointless. So the that would be my okay. So that's like top level thing. But I think the other thing that like you know that like some of us hypothesized and has really played out so far is that the user experience from this generation of blockchain technology on chain has been terrible. Um, you know, we have like, you know, the, 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 we anticipated the prevalence of bridge hacks when we started working on IVC and that turned out to be true. We thought that the, um, you know, MEV being a real concern um, and now, you know, end users of blockchains have lost hundreds of millions of dollars to MEV um, in the last, uh, 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 you know, now in the in this sort of like early on-chain phase. Yeah, can we just uh, like let's just jump in there? MEV is maximum extracted value, and it's yeah. when it's when uh, validators can reorganize. Uh, the transactions in a block to benefit themselves, yeah, basically. Maybe we can make it a little bit more, we can make it a little bit more specific than that. So, you know, you as a, like, you know, you're a, you're an end blockchain user. You've gotten really excited about the latest meme coin, Pepe. It tri- you go to Unis- the Uniswap front end um, and you, you know, place an order. Um, and embedded in that order, uh, not super obvious is this notion of slippage, okay? And what slippage really is is the 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 worst price you're willing to pay for an asset. I.e., I'm willing to uh, uh, like get like you know a one percent or a two percent worse price than the price that I see on my screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and what and you know this is a uh, you know this concept of introducing slippage comes from the fact 
that, you know, there's a latency between like inherently there's like, I sign my, I like sign my transaction. And by the time my transaction gets included in the blockchain, several blocks will have passed and the price will have changed because other people have traded. So in order to get my transaction in, I have to create, uh, but if there is any you gap, give a range, right? You give a range yeah, of what prices you're willing to take. Any gap between that range and the moment my transaction is about to be put into a block, um, these pe searchers who are these MEV extractors will come in and make sure that that gap gets pushed to the edge. So you will essentially you've you've given a range of prices, but you'll all, like as a user on chain, you'll always get the worst one, right? Yeah, and that is and like. On-chain users, what are most on-chain users doing today? Like the biggest on-chain user thing is, uh, uh, is you know, uh, trading on Uniswap and, and it's mostly trading meme coins on Uniswap. Um, uh, trading assets that like primarily trade on-chain rather than um, yeah. on centralized exchanges. Yeah, so retail traders get fucked basically. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. let's get but let's get back to like okay, but you think so, like, so this, centralization so I, I gotta is like good tell this to, whole story because it, it yeah. like we got like we have to like kind of set the framework in which things like PayPal and Visa coming on chain. Okay. Uh what it means. Okay. And so I think like one of the big changes is so I view all of this stuff in the lens of a lot of like very centralized stuff is launching right now. Um, base launched with a, with a centralized sequencer and no fraud proofs, um, you know, and that might be the, a huge onboarding thing. Yeah. That's um, the layer two from Coinbase. That's the layer two from Coinbase. Um, you have, I'll, I'll be better at providing context. Um, Uniswap launched a new, um, system called Uniswap X, um, which is an off chain order book. Um, that has the potential to sort of say, to like help save those, uh, 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 you know, protect those retail traders um, who are trading on Uniswap, but introduces a layer of centralization. You, you have Visa potentially abstracting over gas fees so that people, Visa, on one hand, Visa and PayPal's massive user bases are never going to come on chain if the on-chain experience is, is, is so it is poor yeah. um, and people are losing hundreds of millions of dollars to sort of intermediaries and other actor and, and sort of adversarial actors on chain. Um, we're introducing these layers of permissioning. We're introducing these layers of centralization. There's a potential for, for, for better user experience. The permissionless layer moves more slowly is, uh, is also trying to innovate in terms of solving these problems. And you have this like, sort of tension that exists with it. I think that the, um, that to me, the future of blockchains is all, is very much going to be about sort of airlocks and gateways between the permission world and the permissionless world that the, that the future can't, well, is very unlikely to uh, any future in which, you know, billions of people use blockchains is unlikely to be, uh, uh, fully permissionless. Um, it's more likely that there's going to be this, uh, 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 there's going to be layers that are permissionless and there are going to be permissioned and there's going to be layers that are permissionless, um, in their, in the majority of user interactions and opportunities. And many things will be a blend of both permissioned and permissionless interaction. I think that's just generally reality. 
I do like that there, I think the best thing that is happening in blockchain is there are so many builders and researchers who are built, trying to build, who are trying to build sort of uh, uh, aligned permissionless solutions to a lot of these challenges. Um, so yeah, so on one hand, like you have Visa talking about, you know, gas payments and stuff like that uh, via your Visa card. On the other hand, you have, uh, you know, the Gnosis Pay team, which has launched this amazing infrastructure, which allows you to use a self-custodial wallet from at a payment terminal. Um, and so in an ideal world, we have both. Yeah, because I'm, I'm with you on that. And that's why I'm sort of on the fence is that I think these huge corporations are going to be needed to shepherd a lot of people into the space because certainly after FTX and, and a lot of things, I think retail just got super burned here and they're not going to, they're going to want somebody to hold their hand. And I think that's where a PayPal or a Visa could be, could be good, but it also just sort of takes away, I think from some of the cool original ethos around the whole thing. So, but again, like you said, it's not an either or um, I think with, account abstraction wallets, you know, there's probably a lot of stuff we don't know yet that you can do in there to um, not necessitate having a Visa uh, card as part of your transactions. So uh, hopefully time will tell. And uh, I'd love to um, kind of jump into, you know, like, as, as any listener can tell, you've got a deep knowledge here, but you always didn't do that. So or have that. Let's go back to like you know where did, where did you grow up and how how did you kind of make your make your way uh, into blockchain? Yeah, so okay, so my story is uh, grew up in the Silicon Valley. Uh, my parents are entrepreneurs, um, so all in many ways a lot of this is very familiar. Um, I used to do biotech. I used to uh, like. Do all, like build medical instrumentation, but do and like build all kinds of different things in biotech. Um, I spent about eight years in biotech after college, uh, so I went to college at UPenn. Uh, I did history of science, which is not really relevant to anything, but it made me really good at learning new new fields. Uh, then I, so I did biotech for a while, and I got real bored because biotech moves extremely slowly. Yeah. Um, as I sort of got towards the end of it. And I was looking for something that was moving faster. Um, and so I was sort of exploring, you know, the like various meetup scenes that were in the Bay Area at the time. Um, and I got real interested in like the cryptography, security and privacy sort of ecosystem that existed in the Bay Area. I, I felt like there was a lot of um, commonality of values and viewpoints between me and them. And so I dove into... There, uh, so I dove into that world. I was really interested in things and what like war and signal. What year are we talking about? Huh? This what is year? 2013. 2013. Okay. Yeah. And so, so I'd been, so I graduated from college in 2005. I did biotech until like basically 2012, 2013. I started to look for something else. Started going to meetups in 2012 and 2013. Got pulled into like the security and privacy scene. Met a lot of the people who. I currently work with in blockchains and cryptocurrencies. Then um, got um, started an enterprise blockchain company called SkewChain in 2014. Started contributing to things like Tendermint and uh, uh, Zcash and stuff like that. 
I uh, got really fascinated by zero-knowledge proofs, wanted to learn how all the cryptography worked, generally wanted to learn how all of the cryptography worked. So I spent a lot of time learning cryptography and distributed systems. Um, I was like, I didn't really understand what problem public blockchains were solving. I thought they were like interesting technical constructs. I didn't really understand the business problem they were solving until maybe like 2016, 2017. At that point, realized that the future was going to be public chains um, and that that was the thing that I wanted to focus on. So left SKU chain, uh, start just focused on all the public chains. In like 2015, 2016, I was also sort of part of this community of people um, who pretty much all ended up building uh, L1s, Jay Kwan, uh, Dominic Williams, Martin Kopelman, uh, 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 Arthur Brightman, everyone was... All of these people like lived in the Bay Area at the time, so it was really convenient. We would get together on Saturdays, we would hang out, we would talk about technical ideas and, and blockchain designs and stuff like that. Um, 2017, obviously this massive amount of capital flew, uh, flowed into everybody's different projects, spent a lot of time helping people with, those, with their various problems. 2018, decided to focus on shipping Cosmos. Um, so like sort of manage the whole Cosmos launch. Um, 20, after that happened, 2019, so 2019 Cosmos launches, doing IBC took a lot longer than expected. So 2019 and 2020, we were basically finishing up IBC. 2021 IBC launches, 2021 we launch some, we start sommelier. And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of been my journey. I've had a lot of ideas and influence uh, over the whole design of proof of stake, on-chain governance, uh, interoperability, still know a lot of cryptography. And uh, yeah, and like I would say, the th you know, I would say I continue to believe that like the thing that I am most like, so, you know, you talk about this ethos of permissionlessness and it's like, the like place where permissionless makes the biggest difference is like financialization and DeFi. It doesn't mean that just financialization can only apply to uh, sort of very traditional finance concepts. I also think like NFT Fi, GameFi, um, the financialization of culture, the financialization of gaming um, are also going to be uh, important aspects of all of this stuff. Um, but like, yeah, DeFi and like it's sort of cousins are like the thing that really interests me. And it sounds like, um, cryptography was kind of your way in. Is that, is that yeah. fair to say? And, and what was it about cryptography that kind of grabbed you? Um, I liked the map, um, is probably, or like, I liked, I don't know. It's, it, it's hard to really res to like kind of, uh, to reverse engineer. At the time, I was just like, well, I think this is a really interesting, interest, intellectually interesting domain. Um, how math, like how this field of math uh, underlies so much like human coordination, security, privacy. Uh, uh, like there's this very human, there's this, there's this r relationship between cryptography and of like somewhat er es esoteric math and very human things um, like privacy, intellectual freedom, coordination, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, like basic human rights. 
Um, so there's, it's a very odd thing that there's this like field of math that like connects so heavily to these really fundamental human things. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's been really, it was really, it, that like really sucked me into like wanting to learn a lot about it. Um, I do very little cryptography these days. I do mostly businessy stuff, um, and like higher level protocol work, but, um, the, 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 a lot of that knowledge is still in my head and like, you know, I, I like, you know, I like following all of the developments in, in, uh, in zero knowledge proof protocols and stuff like that. Yeah. It's, it sounds to me like if you could do it over, maybe you'd go back and be a computer science major in undergrad and not history. I mean, I went to Penn and at the time their computer science, like I tried computer science and their computer science yeah. department was just awful. Uh -huh. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, my skill is generally that, like, if I want to learn any subject, I can just learn it. That's cool. Yeah, not many people can say that. Um, was it Ethereum going live that kind of convinced you about public chains versus what you've been doing with SkewCoin? Or, uh, was it Skew, Skew Chain? Skew chain? Um, no, it wasn't. Like, I, I was, I mean, I got to say I was an Ethereum skeptic. I was an Ethereum contributor in many ways, and I've been friends with Vitalik for a long time. Um, and, you know, uh, like I liked a lot of the people, um, but the initial technical architecture seemed incredibly flawed to me. Um, and, uh, it's been honestly ex sort of ex extraordinary watching all of those flaws mostly get resolved, mm -hmm. um, over the course of the last, you know, couple of years, especially this last year, you know, I thought MEV was going to be fa fatal to Ethereum. I thought uh, I was extremely skeptical that the proof of stake transition would ever happen. I think this uh, re-architecting of Ethereum into this sort of roll-up centric vision, which makes it a lot more like Cosmos, I think is directionally correct. Um, and so I've been generally really uh, proud of what Ethereum has accomplished. But in the beginning, Ethereum actually seemed uh, extremely bearish for me on the future of public chains. Yeah. Um, but like, I felt like, but what I realized is, is that like the utility of a public blockchain and of public blockchains in general to humanity is so high that it's likely that there's going to be enough desire for these things to overcome all of their early flaws. It's a little wild too, because as you're you know talking about that and, and you know the history better than anyone about all the different L1 blockchains that were out there, and now everything seems to be accruing to Ethereum, and think you know people are changing L1s into layer twos so that they can you know get the security and and, and other benefits of the Ethereum chain, but be faster or be more specialized. Um, it, and having covered Ethereum for a long time, you know, how many Ethereum killers have come and gone. Um, but yet it seems like it, kind of by hook or by crook, Ethereum just starts to gain more mass or, or more um, sort of weight in, in the space, um, which is, I, I think, a bit unexpected. Like you said, I, I think. Uh, I, um, I think I spend a lot of, I, I mean, I feel like I, I have a very detailed understanding of why this is from building in Cosmos, from building Sommelier, which is very, uses Cosmos tech, but is very Ethereum focused in its uh, uh, products. It's the primary interface for its like sort of the protocols is from the Ethereum chain. What I would basically say is 
the thing that Ethereum has been able to do uniquely is bring on board like various types of risk capital um, uh, that have, you know, basically, you know, the Ethereum ICO appealed to a lot of very risk tolerant uh, people. And then those people have made a lot of money. And then those people have been happy to deploy that money, taking on additional risk um, in many cases. And Ethereum uniquely has uh, has has that population of sort of committed, aligned risk capital uh, that very few, essentially no, especially in the sort of post, especially in this bear market, basically no other blockchain ecosystem um, has that. I think on the other hand, we are, I, I would say like, I'm, you know, I've like, been trying to change that about Cosmos um, for the last maybe six or seven months, um, and as and like it's going kind of okay. Um, but I think like one of the biggest challenges that all of the other ETH killer ecosystems have is largely they didn't, you know, they raise at large valuations, they don't have risk capital onboarded that they like did like thousand X returns from who are then willing to go and like sort of speculate and take risk with, you know, one or 10% of that, uh, uh, of those massive returns. Um, instead you have like a population that is very much professional investors, uh, mercenary retail, mm -hmm. um, speculators, um, who aren't as willing to like just roll, you know, a hundred million dollars into a semi-functional base bridge and go, you know, and go seed an ecosystem. Yeah. Um, and that's, really that's a tough challenge to overcome. For, yeah. For yeah. And that's, that's really interesting about how you characterize it as the people who were there at the beginning and the risk takers and their tolerance. I hadn't thought about it like that in the, in personal terms. Um, but maybe this is a good time to sort of, talk about cosmos and why how it differs from ethereum and what what you guys were hoping to achieve and what you did achieve um you know by by creating this different uh model for kind of a base layer and then the, the things that you can build on top of a, of a blockchain yeah i mean i think people uh especially people who showed up into blockchains in this last bull run um actually don't really remember what blockchains looked like in 2017 and 2018. Um, in 2017, 2018, there were no bridges. The only way of moving between blockchains was centralized exchanges. Mm -hmm. uh, the, there were, most of the blockchains that were out there were proof of work chains. Um, most of the blockchains were forks of Bitcoin. Uh, Ethereum existed. Ethereum had like, Ethereum was subject to very high gas prices. Things were very, very, you know, the user experience on top of Ethereum was pretty poor. There were a lot of hacks. There were a lot of, uh, so, you know, this was the world. And Cosmos wanted to do a couple of things. One is we wanted to show that a very rigorously designed proof of stake system that enabled high throughput blockchains high throughput was possible and could be done in a way that still felt permissionless and decentralized. Because what everyone had hypothesized before was that, you know, 
proof of stake networks with validator sets. It would walk in uh, some set of initial network participants and they would just run the network forever. And so, you know, we focused really hard on this like very unique decentralized launch of the Cosmos chain, hub chain on really, you know, demonstrating that BFT protocols that until then had only existed in acad- sort of academic environments could actually run in the same sort of open internet way um, that they had. Uh, so that was like kind of that. Um, and then the other piece that we've, we sort of, and we sort of have always been our core of our thesis that there would be, that there was going to be two things. One is that there was this desire for sovereignty, um, that people, projects, communities would design, would, would be, would desire to sort of own their own blockchain where they could set their own consensus rules, where they could, you know, make their own things. And then this longer term thesis around what we call app chains, which is the, uh, you know, Ethereum was the prim- you know the primary example of a general purpose blockchain. Now you have all these high scale general purpose blockchains like Aptos and Sui and Solana um, all exist. But like this idea of a general purpose blockchain was a big uh, um, it was like sort of this idea. We had this counter idea, which was the final form of many blockchain projects and ideas would be like uh, like sort of blockchain products would be an app chain where the protocol could control everything, could control block production, could control validator section, could control their transaction inclusion policy, uh, could control what, you know, how and when and where uh, gas fees were charged, um, everything. Uh, And, you know, these have all been very long bets to play out. Um, The the success of Cosmos' proof-of-stake uh, work, I think, translated into rapid adoption across many, many different chains and was, you know, an influence on on things like Ethereum proof of stake launching. Uh, and then the, uh, but the app chain thesis, I still think is basically in incredibly in its, in its infancy. I am, I've honestly been shocked at how long it has taken like apps to really become popular on blockchains. I think there, we are still just like in the earliest stage of like any applications at all really existing on blockchain. So what's like to make it concrete, what's an example of something you think or you would have thought would as an application be more prevalent in blockchain right now? I would have thought that like financialized, like social media apps, financialized gaming um, like all of the things people are talking about is like potentially like the next wave of stuff um, would actually have been further along. But like one of the other things that's always unpredictable about one of the other things that's like very true about blockchains is that bull markets are just incredibly distracting. Um, uh, like when we go into these like speculative frenzies um, that happen in blockchain and you know, whenever we kind of get into these like speculative frenzy, it distracts all the builders. It distracts all the communities. Um, nobody knows where to focus their effort. Um, and when resources become more constrained, everybody has to pick a few bets um, and kind of play those out. And so this like, oh, like we build in the bear market thing. There's a lot of truth to it. You know, have, I've been, this is like, this is my, you know, third market cycle. Um and yes, it is incredibly focusing. 
um, yeah. uh, to, you know, it is much, much easier to focus um, and it is much less tempting. You know, the, the nature of bull markets is you want to, you're going to play, you're going to, you do try to like, you know, you do tend to go wide. Like you're like, oh, I'm going to try this and I'm going to try this and I'm going to try this. And I mean, you can say the same thing about, you know, uh, uh, me. It's like, you know, during the, during the 2021 bull market, um, you know, I was probably, you know, I'm still working on like too many projects, but, uh, you know, at the time it was just like, okay, we're just going to like try and make, do everything at the same time. Um, and, you know, we're going to try and make a bunch of different parallel bets, even with inside sommelier, whereas right now, you know, sommelier, we've like really been focused on like the Ethereum liquid staking market. Because there just, you know, there aren't also as many things that like seem compelling. Um, like it is just an incredible, it is, it drives a lot of focus during the bear markets. Yeah, the, the bull market's like a shark when it attacks and its eyes get rolled over, you know, and you just yeah. can't see anything. You're just in a frenzy. Um, so l let's just finish out with Cosmos because I mean, it's, it, it's had better days, I guess is one way to put it. Um, it it's... Uh, so Okay, I'll give you. I'll, I'll I'll say there's two thesis, two things that are true here. Okay, so you know I was interviewed for this CoinDesk article about sort of Cosmos having you know 12 months to sort of figure itself yeah, out. Yeah, Sam before. Kessler wrote that. It was quite, yeah. quite an in-depth piece. Yeah, uh, and that represents in in, a, in to some extent one part of my thesis, which is Cosmos needs a sense of urgency because the like basically every other blockchain ecosystem has built their version of cosmos already um, or is building their version of cosmos um so you know when like we had the we had this huge advantage in cosmos in like the sort of uh from like 2019 until 2023 the last four years which is if you wanted your own app chain you wanted bridging built in, you wanted control, you wanted to experiment with things like custom protocols. Um, you didn't, you know, you wanted, uh, uh, you, you had all the, we were basically the only game in town. Um, you had to use like all of the popular blockchains used some or all of our technology. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, you know, you had Matic and Polygon who were using some of our, who were using our technology, uh, Binance, BNB chain and BSC. You had uh, Kronos the, uh, and, and Crypto.com uh, and their, their chain ecosystem. So you just had these like very large, million, you know, large scale ecosystems and they had like one option. Well, now you have a lot of options. Um, uh, you have, you know, all of the different L2 stacks, ZK, Optimistic, you have uh, uh, rollups on other chains. You know, everything is, everything is kind of becoming more and more like Cosmos. So that's the, that's to me though, like Cosmos has been seeing better days thing because, and like you see that, right? Is people are like, well, okay, well, should I just bet somewhere else? Like optimism and the OP token is basically a meme coin for the optimism stack in the same way that like Adam is the meme coin for the Cosmos SDK um, mm -hmm. and its stack. Um, Arbitrum is the meme coin for the Arbitrum stack. Why don't I just, you know, I can like, parallel best across all of these things. And that is all true. Um, on the other hand, we are seeing 
the first sets of applications kind of launching right now that uniquely need the Cosmos stack. You know, the unique needs of the Cosmos. So like DYDX is like the perfect example of what the ideal Cosmos user um, uh, uh, would look like. And when that goes live and like they're, they're in testnet right now, um, and I've been, you know, I've been working with the DYDX team about their For Cosmos people who don't launch. know, I'll just give a word. What is DYDX? Uh, absolutely. Thanks. Yeah, DYDX is the leading. So there is a, a type of trading instrument um, that has been, has long been has been very popular in blockchains called a perpetual option or a, a perpetual. Um, and it's basically a way of taking a leveraged bet on um, vol on like price movement of an asset. So you know you wake up you, you th and you think Bitcoin is going to go up or you think Bitcoin is going down. Um, you can pace, place a bet um, as a financial instrument on like the the movement of Bitcoin price um, versus and you can do so with a substantial amount of leverage. Um, so you know if Bitcoin you know you you might like put up five hundred dollars into the trade, but you know you could be trading a Bitcoin position that is essentially like five thousand. Uh, or fifteen thousand um, uh, dollars, or more, um, and these this sort of leverage trade, um, it it is both um, useful. Um, you have these highly volatile assets; it's fun. Um, so it is both useful for like hedging against, um, like if you're if you're a professional market maker and you're you're participating in both like the crypto asset market, even the stock market, having these perpetuals is like a really useful instrument for various types of trading strategies. It's also basically a very fun sort of gambling-like instrument for retail. It's been very popular. And DYDX has, um, DYDX has been very successful in, crea in uh, creating a uh, decentralized alternative to, so these markets have primarily been on centralized exchanges for the last you know, 10 years. And now these perpetual markets are, is like the biggest perpetual market for this is DYDX, uh, which is today an Ethereum L2 running on Starkware's technology, um, but has a centralized order book. And they are using Cosmos to build the next version of their technology stack, which is decentralizing many of the centralized components, including the order book using the Cosmos technology stack. Yeah. And what's cool about the perpetual derivatives is like a, a typical derivative, a, a traditional one, it has a period and then it, it um, you know, it was called it uh, settles, right? And then you have to get a new contract. But uh, so, you know, there's more trading fees involved, but with a perpetual, I believe it just rolls it and rolls and rolls, right? Until you close it. Yep. Yeah. So I know this isn't probably, I don't know if this is necessarily fair, but Terra was built with Cosmos technology. Do you think that had an unfair effect when Terra collapsed and, and that sort of hit the, the Cosmos DeFi, DeFi kind of ecosystem? Yeah. So here's, here are things that I think are the, the effects of, the, of, of Terra, right? Um, so Terra was this blockchain built with the Cosmos SDK. They started building with the Cosmos SDK in 2019. Um, they decided to really focus on um, DeFi um, as a use case for. So they had always started with this stablecoin. Um, Cosmos enabled them to build a kind of stablecoin that you could not have built on 
in Ethereum, for instance, um, and certainly would not have gotten as big on Ethereum. So this is like one of the, this is kind of like the, uh, you know, the dual sides of this stuff I feel as, you know, someone who's been building the space is, you know, co- you know, Ethereum for one of the things that was an effect of Ethereum is it like, you know, the limitations of throughput and gas prices and uh, all of the challenges of using the software also acted as like a self-limiting factor on the size of experimental financial structures that could be built on top of it as well. Whereas building with the Cosmos stack kind of really uh, allowed Terra to run the experiment at enormous scale. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and it collapsed it, you know, as a, you know, with like, you know, the token being worth about $40 billion and, you know, north of $20 billion of the stable coin. And essentially all of that went to zero, which was this massive devastating effect. The other thing is, is this interoperability protocol that, so so a lot of the technologies that Cosmos had built, um, effectively Terra was the primary user. So people who, you know, there was people very quickly realized that the easiest and cheapest way to access um, a product called Anchor on Terra, which was paying uh, 20% returns in their stablecoin and other projects on the Terra blockchain, was frequently to buy atoms, which were listed on many exchanges, go through a project called Osmosis, which is the primary decentralized exchange um, in Cosmos, and uh, then enter into the Terra ecosystem. And there were, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of Terra assets on Osmosis. There were billions of dollars a month of financial flows into and out of the Terra ecosystem through the Cosmos tech stack, the vast and overwhelming majority of builders. So about a little over a year ago, Terra collapses. I was in there in this chat room working with their validators. The thing was in a death spiral. The economic security was collapsing. We turned off the staking mechanism. It was a whole mess. I and like so we're a year past that. Um, liquidity in the Cosmos ecosystem has been terrible. Uh, most of a lot, of, basically everyone in the Cosmos ecosystem has been wrecked to one extent or another. Um, uh, by the decline in, you know, sometimes spectacularly, maybe a little less with Adam. Uh, if you've just been sitting there staking Adam and holding Adam, um, you know, a lot of Cosmos to- ecosystem coins are down, you know, 95, 99% um, from, you know, from last year. And so things are, you know, things, that's a, that's a, that's a bit of darkness. Yeah. The flip side, I would say, is we have a bunch of projects that have launched who came out of the Terra ecosystem that are launching right now or have, you know, rec- have launched in the last year that seem to be doing incredibly well um, and bringing a lot of energy to the ecosystem. So um, like my favorite, a bunch of things that are like my favorite projects that have launched recently in Cosmos. So we have a, another perpetuals exchange um, called Lavana, um, and Lavana was uh, incubated in the Terra ecosystem and recently launched on top of Osmosis and another Cosmos blockchain called Say. And Lavana is like one of the most fun apps I've ever used in blockchains, period. Absolutely love it. I'm not an investor, uh, but uh, uh, I really like the product. And I think it is like an enormous demonstration of like building something. There's this automated trading system called Calculated Finance um, that is also on top of Osmosis. Uh, there's this team called Kujira, 
which has built a DEX product that's like, or a, a set of DeFi products that are um, turning out to be incredibly popular with a lot of people. And so, you know, we've onboarded this great cohort of builders. So, you know, people were often asking the question, okay, so how much, once Terra collapses, how many of these builders are going to stick around in Cosmos? Um, and like, what is that going to look like? The reality is I think a lot of the best builders from the Terra ecosystem actually did stick around in Cosmos. Um, it's taken them about a year to like find their footing in the, in the sort of post-Terra Cosmos ecosystem, um, launch all their systems and products again. And I think a bunch of them um, are incredibly exciting. But now we have the challenge, which is their user base is like the survivors of the Terra collapse. They're all very conservative. They're all very shell-shocked. They're like the opposite of that Ethereum innovation capital. And the question is, can we activate them? Um, but, you know, Levana trading volumes have been, you know, going up quite a bit um, in the last month. Their user numbers are growing. Um, and so I do think that there's a lot of green shoots in the Cosmos ecosystem. There's a lot of stuff that's launching, you know, within the next few months that really demonstrates unique things that you can build in the Cosmos ecosystem that you can't build in all of these other L2 ecosystems, um, which will showcase to users why they should come and experiment and venture out outside of the um, uh, EVM ecosystems um, and like the sort of ETH L2 ecosystems. And hopefully we can attract a, a new user base um, built on sounder economics than Terra, um, but using the same using like basically improved versions of the technology that was so powerful from Terra. That's really well said. So let's talk about sommelier. Um, you, you describe it as a decentralized asset manager, um, kind of like it puts me in mind of the BlackRock of the blockchain. Um, but you're also, you mentioned earlier uh, that it's using Cosmos technology, but it's very much pointed towards the Ethereum world. Can you kind of tell me about that and, and why... Um, and then I got some other questions about like the decentralized nature of it and, and what like it, it sounds a lot like it's about access, right? So, okay. So like, I guess the first question is why do you need a decentralized asset manager period? Um, isn't the entire uh, uh, point of blockchains to uh, like sort of be your own bank? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, a, so what we, I think what we can learn from, the last market cycle is people real, like the majority of capital that came into DeFi actually came in through centralized entities. Um, the Celsiuses of the world, the BlockFi's of the world, um, you know, took retail capital in sort of a web two system and then deployed it into DeFi. Um, and like all of that essentially rugged their users. There was incredibly poor risk management. The systems were incredibly opaque. There was fraud. Um, so when I started building Sommelier, my idea, my point was, I was pretty sure I could use Cosmos Tech to build a system that had a meaningful set of checks and balances and a meaningful way of enforcing transparency such that you could deliver what people wanted from the CDFI user experience, which is, hey, I want to interact with these DeFi protocols. I want the returns from DeFi. I want the transparency, but I don't, I can't, like, I don't want to wake up every morning or, you know, I don't want to spend hours every day, like, adjusting my portfolio, tweaking my positions, rebalancing, adjust monitoring risk. Uh, I don't want to be on pager duty um, because, you know, uh, of, you know, some market event has happened. Mm -hmm. 
And so the point of sommelier was, hey, let's build a technology stack that is actually decentralized. So it's not just a glorified multi-sig. Um, it's not an, it's not the, an on-chain, it's not like, it's not just an on-chain BlackRock. It's actually something that never could exist in like the pre-blockchain financial world. How do you build that? Can you build that? And then can you, can it deliver outsized returns? Um, and what we've seen with this successful growth of, you know, of sommelier, which is, you know, we've gone from like a million TVL to 25 plus, I guess, 27 million TVL um, in the last, uh, uh, in, you know, since the beginning of the year, we've been successfully growing this in the, in, in the bear market. Um, and not only that, we've been through multiple sort of market turmoil events, whether it's the USDC DPEG, we had our, uh, our stablecoin product, Real Yield USD, live during that. So, you know, and we were able to manage that risk. Um, recently, we've had the curve hack um, and the ripple effects of the curve hack through the lending protocols of which, you know, uh, uh, sommelier uh, products are interacting with things with fra like FraxLend and Aave, all of which were affected by that situation. Um, and with sommelier was able to, the, the protocol was able to act to uh, mitigate those risks in, you know, under 24 hours. So rather than you as a user being like, oh, like, what does this mean? How am I exposed? What am I doing? You know, protocol just takes care of all of that. Um, so that's the dream. The dream is, and so I guess the reason why we built on Ethereum, Sommelier is really optimized for a world of sort of real financial value creation and real transaction flows. We need trading volumes. We need blending and borrowing markets. We need composability. And all of that stuff is happening in Cosmos and it's becoming closer and closer to the day we're building something. We're sommelier building products for Cosmos starts to make sense. But in the, in the past, you know, for the last, especially, you know, the last two years, Ethereum DeFi has been a lot more mature. It's been a lot more of a fixed target to build against. It's been a lot more, it's just like a lot more mature and stable. And, you know, the, there are there are even in the bear market large stablecoin and liquid staking and other cash flows um, that Sommelier can build on top of. Well, and one thing you're, you're advertising this as is, is um, it's, it's kind of like you say combining off-chain compute power um, that traditional you know financial institutions like asset managers use, but it's private and it's proprietary, right? And it's like they have machine learning and they have AI and they have all this, um, all this really powerful computing that they employ to create their models and test their models. But of, of course, you know, you need to either be a client of that firm or it's they're they're doing it for themselves and they're not shouting this out at the rooftop. Right. So, and, but you guys are saying you want to, you, you want to emulate that system, but bring it on chain and make it transparent. Is, do I have that right? Well, so if you put, okay, so what we wanted to do is strike a balance. We believe that without sort of both off-chain compute and proprietary models, you cannot compute uh, a fully transparent on-chain system. Um, you know, you need alpha and confidentiality to succeed um, in DeFi right. um, or, and in finance in general. But in the... In the world of like a traditional asset manager, you like basically hand your money over to that asset manager. That asset manager, you hope, does what they say. 
You hope they don't steal from you. You hope they invest in the things that they said they were going to invest in and don't uh, put it all, like bet it all on, you know, Luna or UST or whatever. Um, uh, you want, you hope that these things are true and regulators must exist um, and courts must exist to enforce people if they lie about these things, to prevent lies from happening, to license people who participate in these systems. What if you could build us, and like what Sommelier is instead a demonstration of a system where a lot of those checks and balances are worked into a protocol. On the smart contract layer of the system, we regulate what DeFi protocols and what assets uh, a strategy can hold. So uh, real yield USD or real yield ETH aren't going to add new liquid staking tokens or new stable coins without governance votes and a sort of extensive public process. Um, that's going to make it very clear to anyone who's holding assets in these systems, you know, that their risk exposure is changing. Um, the system is designed to allow anyone to add or deposit or withdraw money at any time. Um, you can always check the smart contracts on DBank, uh, see exactly what positions they're in, so you know what the system is doing for it. But how um, the off-chain strategist picks the asset balance, what what uh, uh, DeFi protocols we're using, what ticks we're selecting, um, any other parameters in the DeFi protocol, how, like the models, those are all proprietary to the strategist um, and gives them the ability to have like a meaningful edge that someone can't just come around and copy. Yeah, um, that's your secret sauce, of course. Um, that being said, can you give any indication of like what, where you guys are seeing alpha right now and where somebody can get edge? Yeah, I mean... We could, I mean, one, one of the things that I think people struggle, sometimes investors struggle with, is the difference between their sort of theoretical vision of efficient markets in crypto and the practical reality of how inefficient the markets are today and the um, amount of value that, you know, a system like Sommelier can extract from markets today um, and like my belief that markets will tend to contain large inefficiencies into the future um, uh, on like a relatively long time horizon. So it is actually kind of astonishing. It continues to be pretty astonishing to me how um, like for how inefficient the stablecoin market is, um, you know, how much opportunity, how like how slowly and ineffectively capital moves around, how frequently Stable coins are mispriced in decentralized exchanges. Um, you know, we are uh, on on the USDC USDT market. Uh, Sommelier's uh, a seller is like one of the most profitable. Is like in the top five most profitable LPs, and every other LP that's in the top five is like a centralized system. Um, and we are a decentralized system, and yet this opportunity exists. Mm. Um, the, the same thing is true about like the liquid staking mar uh, market. Uh, also, just incredibly huge amounts of inefficiency, um, huge amounts of uh, price volatility, uh, lack of sophisticated market makers. Almost anything where price discovery or volumes are large on chain today, um, there's just a lack of sophisticated capital that is... Um, uh, providing an effective counterparty. And so as, you know, as we say, like, uh, I believe the numbers that we've, uh, um, we've released so far is that like, um, like sommelier liquidity on 
in real in our ETH liquidity has been a counterparty for five hundred million dollars of liquid staking trades, um, and like we've earned over forty ETH um, uh, from that process. Um, uh, and you know that that opportunity scales pretty nicely. Like we could absorb a lot significantly more capital into that. Um, the uh, like leveraged like the 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 delta between what you could be earning. Um, on your ETH liquid staking tokens, either through leverage or market making or various other protocols, and what you can borrow ETH at at uh, on lending protocols is also a huge um, delta, which has been which is powering you know a lot of sommelier strategies. Uh, the and this has been I think a huge factor in in like uh, creating like large opportunities for sommelier. Yeah, cool. Thank you for that. That's really interesting. So lastly, like. You've, you've been through cycles, many cycles. This is your third. How do you feel about this one um, in terms of, you know, compared, comparing it to uh, the, the, the past um, winter cycle? And are, are there things that you're looking out for um, that will tell you that things are starting to turn around and, and are you seeing them yet? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. One is, as you, we mentioned, we started out with, with like PayPal and Visa, and there's a lot of stuff that hasn't been, that like isn't public, that is under NDA from various uh, parties, um, that where institutional infrastructure uh, uh, participation has not, re- has not pulled back in any way, shape, or form compared to um, earlier market cycles. Um, in earlier mar- market cycles, Institutions that stayed either went only enterprise chains or went or went only into research mode. Um, instead, like there are large institution like teams at, at, at institutional players who are building stuff. What has been the biggest source of pullback has been how ba- how risk off capital has become. Um, and especially on-chain capital has become, but like generally, like market makers have pulled back enormously. Um, uh, the like everyone who's who used to be doing things on-chain has basically stopped um, in on the institutional side. Like it's basically like like on-chain institutional capital is almost entirely like a network of like you know a small number of Singapore-based family offices um, <laughs> that are like family offices of wealthy crypto people um, that are doing on-chain stuff. And it's like really, it's really like the market has tightened and the number of players in the market has tightened enormously. Um, That happened before. Um, I think the difference is there's actually a lot more like the the delta between sort of on-chain volumes and on-chain users um, at the like end user retail level and the like people who are willing to be m- sort of market participants, counterparties, long-term engaged capital has like really blown up in the same, whereas in the past, like basically what would happen is like all of the on-chain capital would disappear, but also all of the um, uh, counterparties. Now it's like the counterparties have disappeared, but the on-chain capital is still, the, like on-chain users are are actually still there in in to a much greater degree, um, which I think is both a good and a bad thing. It's mostly a bad thing. It's like, it would be, it's, it, it is going to be a struggle. And I think the other, I mean, the other thing that I think is the, is the, 
is the is the big challenge, I think. And another interesting sort of cultural thing is that like FTX was a much larger psychological shock to U.S. capital allocators than it was to sort of Middle Eastern and Asian capital allocators. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I think you, it's like a lot, a lot uh, it's had a, like a very different effect in sort of like the way the North American market works, which is, has been a pullback to like only early seed stage stuff. What do you think um, accounts for that? Why was the U.S. shocked more than Asian or Middle Eastern investors? I, I think on one, I think it's two things. I think it's Asian investors are, Asian and Middle Eastern investors are frankly more used to sort of large scale frauds. Um, <laughs> they happen much more frequently in the TradFi markets of those in, in Asia, in the Middle East. And so they're like, and there was less of a, and so, and there's like sort of an inverse thing where like, even though, you know, Alameda was like a Hong Kong based entity and then it became a Bahamas based entity um, and FTX was a Hong Kong based entity that became a Bahamas based entity. Culturally, they were still very U.S. focused mm-hmm. um, and then became even more U.S. focused with, you know, you know, naming sports arenas and um, and very much becoming and like so FTX became the face of crypto to U.S. institutional players, whereas in Asia, institutional players, Asian and Middle Eastern institutional players were never really uh, that heavily catered to, never felt a strong cultural connection. So it was just like a less of a psychological shock watching mm-hmm. when FTX turned out to like sort of uh, have been conducting this sort of large scale deception. Yeah, um, for sure. And I think and that's that's just another factor in this whole system. Yeah. I also think on the regulatory side. Europe, like Asia and Europe are moving very, are, are moving in a very positive direction. Like, you know, there's a lot of challenges for DeFi and stable coins, but a lot of things in crypto have effectively become legalized and regulated and on a firm regulatory footing um, in the EU um, that can like enable things like Gnosis Pay to exist um, uh, and like sort of fit into the existing banking system. Um and Asia is also moving in that direction, whereas the U.S. is just like at a logjam and in, in, in like endless litigation right now. Yeah, yeah. It's a very frustrating uh, moment here in the U.S. for that. Um, well, Zaki, thank you so much, man, for, for all of your knowledge and insight and your, the history that you know. Um, it's been fascinating. For folks who want to know more about you or sommelier, um, to tell them how they can find out more about this stuff. Um. So follow me on Twitter, Zmanian, Z-M-A-N-I-N on Twitter, Psalm Finance on Twitter, all good, pl- or, you know, x.com, I guess now, um, all good places to sort of, um, to follow up. Yeah, great. And best of luck with Somalier. It sounds like you guys are having some great growth in this bear market. So, I mean, it'd be fascinating to see what you guys can do um, if the bull market comes back around. I will come back around. Yeah, when it comes back around, we should say. Yeah. All right. Well, again, Zachy, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. Thanks. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes.